and making a difference every day. Welcome to the Animal Care and Welfare Podcast, iBuzz, where we combine the science and practice of animal welfare in a fun and engaging way, where we answer questions, find solutions, discuss tools, and achieve results, all for happy animals and people. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and this podcast is brought to you by Animal Concepts, and the Practical Animal Welfare Science Membership Experience. Let's buzz. Welcome to another podcast. Today we are joined by Dr. David Shepherdson, who is going to be talking to us about his career in animal welfare and conservation. Welcome. Hi, Sabrina. It's great to talk to you. Yes, I'm delighted to have you on this podcast. Of course, you know, followed your work for years, your research, your book, of course, Second Nature, that many people know you from. But just for those people who, you know, haven't heard about your work or you, could you start with a small introduction as to, you know, how you got into this profession and all the research that you've been doing for so many years? Certainly, Sabrina, yes. I don't know how far back you want me to go, but... Um... As far I, well, back as you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got into biology because of my mother, who was a very keen biologist. She's actually a bi biochemist, but really interested in all aspects of biology. And so uh, because of her, my father was a mathematician, and I was always very interested in the sciences and then the life sciences. And um, frankly, biochemistry, uh, I know I, was, I probably was a disappointment to my mother in biochemistry because I could just never remember those biochemical pathways and it just didn't uh, didn't excite me that much but uh, but um, uh, natural history and and animals did and and uh, I know I know because my parents kept going on about it that I spent a lot of time looking at my pets a rabbit in particular and wondering what they were thinking so kind of getting trying to get inside the heads of animals is something that I started doing from a very early age and so I ended up uh, going to uh, university college, um, study biology, did a, a degree there at the University of Sussex in Southeast England. And then, um, yeah, I wanted to carry on doing that. So I did a PhD and I did a PhD in ethology and all the behavior, all the behavior of animals in the wild, um, which was really a natural progression because uh, as a teenager um, growing up, I, I read the books of people like Conrad Lorenz and Tinbergen and um, Gerald Durrell I was just captivated by you know, wild animals and um, wild animal, animal behavior in, and behavior in the wild. Um, and so I did, so I did a, a PhD and I actually studied a European, the European badger in uh, Southeast England. And kind of the story behind that is that um, as, as many uh, listeners probably know, uh, European badgers are a vector for TB. So there's always been a set, or for a long time, there's been a certain amount of funding to study badgers um, in the wild, just to understand how they use the environment, what their social system is, and how that might relate to uh, transferring uh, TB to cattle. It's a big economic issue in the UK, still is, I think. Yes. Um, been um, many, many attempts to 
control badges, in fact, because they're vectors of debut, which has uh, always been a little bit controversial. Uh, but anyway, that provided me with the funding to, um, to start off my career in uh, animal behavior. And I did that for about four or five years um, at the University of Sussex also. And then, uh, of course, um, you know, as a freshly minted PhD student looking for a job, animal behavior isn't, uh, has, has never been a particularly easy field in which to find a job, I don't think, um, other than in the academic sphere. Well, not easy in that sphere either. Um, but I was, I was lucky enough to get a job at the London Zoo, and this was um, in the late 80s. Um, and um, that was a really, I mean, it was, it was just a very opportunity, very fortunate for me to get into the zoo profession looking at animal welfare and animal behavior at that time, um, because it's really when, um, it's really when, you know, the, the late 80s, early 90s is really when this renewed interest in animal welfare occurred in zoos. Um, and it was presaged in a way by, by particularly by the work of Hal Markowitz, um, who wrote a book in mid 90s, mid 80s, um, about uh, behavioral engineering, he called it at that time, but it's really the topic that's now sort of falls under the umbrella of environmental enrichment, which is basically looking at animals in captive situations. And, um, you know, recognizing that there may be some animal welfare issues and there are some behaviors that potentially indicate that, one of, obvious one, of course, being stereotypic behavior, but plenty of others. And then trying to think about what, what the needs of animals might, what the sort of psychological behavioral needs of animals in captivity might be. Uh, trying to come up with sort of a model to explain those and then to give us some tools to um, to mitigate those those problems and um, so Al Markovitz's book was very influential and, and at the time that I got in the profession was quite new um, and actually as a consequence of, of the, the thinking I think behind his book um, the London Zoo actually created a position um, uh, to, to look at animal behavior. It's kind of a, it was a very applied position, but it was also a research position at the Zoological Society of London. So I spent the first three years um, uh, really being very lucky and getting in right at the ground floor of this new topic, which would turn out to be uh, quite an important topic in zoos and surprisingly, in some ways, still is. Um, Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. yeah. And also some of the some of the, the, the animal welfare big names were uh, were around the London Zoo at that time, like Marion Dawkins, for example, um, was uh, visited the zoo regularly, and and she was a huge she had a huge influence on the field of of animal welfare, and I was able to talk to her, you know, a, a number of times and um, see what she thought about some of these things. Um, Ian Duncan uh, was around at that time. Um, uh, and a, you know a bunch of other people got to meet yeah. them and give some presentations um and so that's a, really it was interesting yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, also because you you know her work like you know um on on looking through their eyes you know her book like that and of course recently she talked about you know wrote about why animals matter but she has Marianne Stam Dawkins has had such a long um career in animal welfare and even though she did most of her work on farm animals. You know, it's so interesting, you know, that she came to the zoo and that you had an opportunity to interact with her and, and discuss all those topics with her. That must have been very interesting. Do you have some like stories of, of what your conversations were about at the time? <laughs> I think most of them were in a pub, so I've probably forgotten most of them. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. You know, most of the good conversations and thoughts for research, you know, happen in pubs and in, in uh, more, yeah. And I think, 
you know, for I think also a lot of people might know you actually from the Oregon Zoo, but now hearing your your stories, you um, grew up in, in England, right? Uh, yes, yeah, I grew up yes. in England and um, yeah, I went to, yeah, I went to university at the University of Sussex. Uh, Dr. Tim Roper was my supervisor there. He supervised my badger research, yeah. Yes, yeah, so it was only later in your career uh, that you moved to the US. So because I think a lot of people know you from the Oregon Zoo and enrichment and yeah. Yeah, and I so um, so I worked for about three years at the London Zoo, and then Le London Zoo uh, at that time I don't know it's uh, maybe it still is. It used to bounce from one financial crisis to another every <laughs> three or four years, and then the early early nineties they had another financial crisis, and um, you know it was my position was in jeopardy at the time, and uh, just at that time um, I met up with uh, Dr. Jill Mellon, uh, who many listeners will will have heard of, I'm sure. And um, she was actually doing her PhD at the time on small cats in zoo, zoo environments. And she came to visit me at the London Zoo. And then a few months later, she uh, asked me if I'd be interested in a temporary position at the Oregon Zoo because she had a, a lab technician who was going off on maternity leave. And uh, so I, I was, uh, at that time, I uh, wasn't sure that my job at the London Zoo would continue. Um, I, I did have some other um, job offers. Um, in other parts of England and actually in the, the US for that matter, I think I was offered a job by the Philadelphia Zoo. Um, but I decided to go to the Oregon Zoo uh, primarily because I already knew Jill and uh, admired her work um, and felt that we were on a similar wavelength. And also frankly, because um, Oregon is just a beautiful place. And uh, in addition to uh, conservation and animal welfare, I, I love um, a wide range of outdoor sports and I love nature and a natural environment and uh, Oregon is uh, in the Pacific Northwest of the US are really a spectacular place for anybody who enjoys doing those things so I thought uh, spending 18 months out here for a while would be a really fun thing to do so that's what I chose to do and one thing led to another as it does in life and um, you know that uh, 18 month position um, became a uh, 20 year career yes um, that's amazing and it's yeah. so interesting yeah. to hear this Thirty-year career. Yeah. Thirty years, yes, yeah, and it's so interesting to hear about these animal welfare positions and developments over all these decades. Because sometimes, sometimes people will say, "Well, animal welfare is such a new field," or you know, we've only just scratched the surface. And to a certain extent, that is true. But to another extent, you know, we have been working on all kinds of different models and ideas and research so many species and in, in so many different places that that's uh, sometimes uh, also forgotten. So it's really wonderful to hear these stories and the developments also through, for example, an influential book and the position creation and that, you know, you had several job offers at the time um, already, you know, looking for people in welfare and behavior uh, roles in a zoo. And so that's, that's very positive. Yeah, I mean, um... Yeah, it's, it's always uh, useful to understand the history of where, where things come from. And so, I mean, in that vein, I, I, I just want to mention Heine Hedegger because, you know, a lot of people think yes. of him as the father of zoo biology. And I think Terry Maple, uh, a well-known zoo director here, uh, has written a book about him. Um, but uh, I remember reading his, many of his books and papers um, you know, when I started working at the Oregon Zoo to kind of understand the, where, where, you know, what the history of this topic was. He was a, a immensely influential, one of the first people to really think about 
and use the admittedly at the time limited information about what animals do in the wild and try to apply that to the zoo setting. Um, so he was very, he was a very influential character yes, at the time. Absolutely, and so important to to read uh, those books and you know look back in in history of what. And and I think that's another interesting part that sometimes people say. Well, sometimes we don't hear a lot of new things, but then you also have to remind people that a lot of the you know ideas or suggestions that people have put forth over the last decades are not necessarily implemented yet today so it's very important to keep revisiting and um, and looking at you know what were some of the ideas and suggestions that we could still use today or learn from yeah yeah that's when, yeah when when you've been working in a field for 30 years you actually start to see some ideas sort of recirculate as it were and, and new people coming into the field sometimes don't even realize that um, they're actually talking about things that were discussed in a, not a wholly dissimilar way, maybe 25 or 30 years before them. Yes. Yeah, Gordon Burkhardt, he often says, you know, to me when we've done some seminars together and wrote a chapter on animal play, and, you know, he often reminds me that, you know, if you want a new idea, you know, he's like, don't forget to look in the past. Um, because <laughs> there's a lot of ideas out there and they're still very, you know, uh, that can be influential, that can be useful, or that can be revisited and, and used in other ways. So yeah, absolutely. And and especially today in the age of digital is we tend to look at what we can find online. And mm -hmm. we often forget that there's libraries out there and archives and all kinds of other materials that might not necessarily be available in a digital format. So yeah. Yeah. Gosh, we would have been uh, we would have just been just amazed thirty years ago at the ease with which you can get access to information now. Yes, yes, absolutely. So you mentioned actually, and of course I I want to go back to that because you already mentioned it twice, where you you talked about animal thoughts and getting into animals' minds, and you talked about you know psychological models of animal welfare, and you know when you think about your time with your companion animals and your rabbits and so on what do you know what kind of stories revolve around that what kind of thoughts did you think they had or in what ways did they experience the world was that what was that like for you oh gosh um well i you know just one point about what you just said that i mean one thing that occurs it's not quite what you asked but um you know, uh, one of the there has been a just a massive paradigm shift in the way that we just perceive animal minds um, since that time. So I, you know, I, 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 I feel I feel I was very lucky to get into the animal behavior field when I did because that was the beginning of a, a lot of um, changes in the way that we think about animals and that, you know sort of the beginning of maybe what younger people would call a modern modern view. But even the even the, the fact the idea that animals had minds was highly contr I mean, it's hard to believe now, but it was highly controversial even back in the eighties. Um, yes. The, the, even the idea of animal thinking. I mean, it, 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 there has been there has been a paradigm shift. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's been immensely influential, and changed and a lot also, of the ways. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, just uh, it, it's changed uh, certainly changed the way that we think about animals and the way that a lot of us relate to animals. I mean, sadly, it hasn't affected uh, all of those things. I mean, I would say there's been a lot more progress in maybe the companion animal and the zoo field than there maybe has been in um, you know the industrial 
settings. Um, there's been a fair amount of change in laboratory for laboratory animals, um, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's also interesting to, you know, of course, through our scientific training and through, like you said, you know, it was, it's controversial and it's still in, in many places is still controversial to, you know, what do we think about animal minds and what um, affective states they have or what type of emotions and how do they experience that. But it's interesting, you know, when we're little, when we're younger and we are interacting with the animals that are in our lives, we have all kinds of ideas about what they are experiencing and they might, you know, be right or wrong, but there's usually not a, you know, we, we don't think that they don't think or feel, right? And so that's really interesting. I think that's also when we're talking about when we're, at least when I was working as, an, as a caregiver and with animals directly, and still today, there is still quite some unease about, you know, talking about animals' thoughts and about animals' affective states or emotions. And um, so, and it's really, of course, great that we're seeing a shift in through research, but also through philosophy on, you know, what animals, who they are, right? Or who they could be and what their lives are like. So, but it's interesting to see how that that confliction can be there sometimes. Well, yes, and then sort of the big shift I think has been that um, you know this idea of parsimony is important in science. That the, sim the the simplest explanation is the best explanation, and the feeling in the you know before the seventies eighties was that the parsimonious explanation for animal minds was that they didn't have one because <laughs> right. it's a it's a very complex thing that us humans have. It's you know. We're always trying to build these barriers between what's human and what's not human. Um, but the, the, the simplest explanation for animals is that they're essentially mechanistic and don't have minds or thoughts. Whereas now, I mean, that has turned 180 degrees. And, it, and I think, well, we're all animals. So surely there must be some, in some respect, a way that we all share similar experiences. Um, yes. And so the, the same principle has been turned 180 degrees with respect to animal minds and thinking and suffering and welfare in a way. Yes, and, as, and you have done lots of different research in different fields uh, in, the, in animal welfare. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more about your interests in the different fields of animal welfare? Well, um, I mean, the, 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 the aspect of animal welfare that I've sort of been most interested in in my career, of course, has been under the, pretty much under the umbrella of environmental enrichment, which is, as I say, traces its, um, it's a concept that goes, goes back to Al Markovitz, or, oh, and before him too, but he was the one that really um, publicized it. And um, his, 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 he was the first person that started me thinking about it. Um, there were some other people who were doing work at the same time. Michael Hutchins, for example, at the National Zoo, um, wrote, about, wrote a number of things about environmental enrichment. And there's a sort of a, as I started into, the, into the, my career, there was kind of two camps for about how to, how to design environments for animals, but how to enrich them for animals. Um, one which was sort of the Hal Markovitz sort of somewhat mechanistic and psychological approach, Skinnerian almost. And then um, people who felt, who felt more sort of, had to be more uh, a naturalistic thing um, based on animals, natural behavior and environments. And uh, those sort of two, those factions uh, were warring a little bit actually in the in the 80s, early 90s. Um, seems a little bit daft now maybe, but um, um, you know, I always felt that 
you know, there was a there was a path down the middle, or uh, well, I, I I guess I was also maybe more on the naturalistic um, side of things, but but um, um, so you know that that got me into thinking about um, the relationship between natural environments, natural behavior, motivation, um, what it was about captivity that um, you know was was lacking, um, and um, you know, and, and then also the other uh, thread to that, with respect to what, what may be interested in this, was trying to fit this into some of the existing models of, of animal behavior, like um, how important it is for animals to gain information um, from their environment. Um, you know, what 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 motivates animals to perform repetitive behaviors, food searching behaviors, and what what does captivity do to that? What 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 does providing animals that normally have to search and process their food, providing them with a prepared food on a on a on a, on a um, stainless steel platter? What does that what does that do to, for their motivation? And what does that how how does that affect their behavior, um, and ultimately their um, their welfare? Um, so those are those are sort of predominant. Um, you know, thoughts for me, uh, and you know, in the environmental enrichment direction, and then a lot. Of, you know, I spent a lot of time working with the other aspect to this is that I mean, in a, in the zoo environment, this is this has to be applied. It's not just a, a theoretical topic. Um, so, um, you know, in addition to you know publishing papers about um, concepts. Um, I was very much involved, as were many other people, uh, with with interacting with the American Zoo and Aquarium Association and the larger zoo world um, in trying to get, uh, in trying to use this information to make changes that would result in improved welfare. And uh, I think, um, you know, in the American Zoo and Aquarium Association, for example, myself and people like Kathy Karst, Dr. Kathy Karstead and uh, Dr. John Mellon, um, um, were someone instrumental in the formation of the Animal Welfare Committee for the American Zoo and Aquarium Association, which has, over the last 20 years, has had a massive impact on, on zoos in uh, North America. And similar, um, similar things have happened in other parts of the world and, and globally through WASA, I think, as well, um, with, with zoos sort of all, all going in this same direction of placing much more emphasis on animal welfare and then trying to come up with guidelines um, or requirements even to case of the AZA um, for uh, for doing these things that we now know are significant for the welfare of animals um, and then and people like Nadia Wilhelmowski are very much involved with that um, right now and, the, uh, and I think that the current hot topic of course is is continuous assessment of welfare in animals, I think that's that's where the cutting edge, kind of the cutting edge is right now. Um, yes. But speaking of speaking of Nadia, an important um, well, a, an important thing for me in this field has been and still under the under the heading of um, enrichment, but 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 maybe just more in welfare in general. Um, her her huge contribution and one that was very valuable to me and that I did some work with is you know the combination of behavioral observations with endocrinolo endocrinological uh, assessments and looking at the interaction of, of those two things. And she was, um, she was a person really that brought that into the, into the zoo field um, with some of her studies, uh, beginning with um, clouded leopards, I think, and cheetah. Um, and I did a, a, a long-term study on, on polar bears in North American zoos, which 
you know, with her with her guidance, we were able to incorporate um, uh, fecal corticoid me measurements as well as behavior elements, which was able, to, which I think gave us a much uh, more insightful view of what was happening. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting um, paper and research that you published around that, especially also because as we're talking about animal welfare, we're talking about the individual and that paper really looked at individual and environmental factors and, and stereotypic behavior and probably other work as well. And can you say a little bit more about why it's so important to have like these different measures when we're looking at individual animals? Well, I mean, it's, it's said often about animal welfare um, assessment, but there's really, there's never any one measure that can really tell you everything about the welfare status of, of, of an individual animal, much as we would love, love there to be one. Um, and so the more different, uh, um, you know, more or less independent views we have, I think the more accurate our, um, our interpretations are, are going to be. So, you know, if you see an abnormal behavior like stereotypic behavior, um, you know, you can look at that behavior, you can look at the circumstances under which it happens, you can infer that it seems to happen in environments that seem to be environments that you would think produce welfare. But if you can combine that with something that, say, is, an, is, an, is a measure, is something of a measure of stress, like fecal corticoids, um, then that gives you another independent data point to back up your inference from the behavior. So the two things, um, you know, when you, when you combine the two, you get um, uh, a much, much more accurate and uh, picture that you can be, I think, um, um, much more confident in uh, your interpretation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, the, and, and, you know, fecal corticoids have been valuable because uh, there is a fair degree of understanding of the physiology behind those measurements. We've, we're always looking for other measurements. Um, and uh, there's, there's a number of other measurements that um, people are using or developing at the moment, but that's been a, a long-standing one. And, and it, has its, it has its own problems. As, um, you know, as Nigel will be the best person to, to talk about that. But... Um, Yes, I yeah, hope to get her onto a podcast <laughs> some other time. Uh, I really um, love her work, like you mentioned. Um, she does a really a lot of great things. You actually have worked on a lot of different species as well, like and also multi-institutional studies with regards to, say, polar bears or looking at um, elephants in North American zoos. But you also, you know, looked at uh, pandas. So. Maybe you can say something about, you know, how that working on different species helped you think across or how it was where you found really where things were really different, kind of focus on the species versus the individuals. Well, yes. Um, and so I've really focused on um, two major areas in my career. Uh, one is the animal welfare and enrichment that we've been talking about. And the other is, um, conservation or species recovery might be a more accurate more specific way of talking about it um, which is a I, it's I don't, I don't think any biologist is not excited about conservation and uh, I grew up um, listening about the stories of uh, saving the Arabian oryx things like that which um, which the London Zoo was was very much engaged with um, so um, you know, I've always looked out for opportunities to be more involved with conservation activities. And, and I was able to do that at the Oregon Zoo, which is one of the reasons I stayed there for a long time. 
because I, I was able to uh, indulge in the things that excited me. Um, so I've, I've been involved with species recovery work for um, at least uh, 20 plus years of, of my career. And I do see the two things as being related because as you just sort of mentioned, um, in a sense they're both, they're both to do with the welfare of animals, but one is on the individual scale, that's welfare, uh, and the other is on the pop, more on the population um, level, and that's conservation. So the, the two are, are almost two sides of the same coin in my mind, and they also have a lot to, um, uh, to give to each other. And one of the one of the, one of the things that conservation one of the advantages to looking at it that way with conservation is that you know the conservation of populations um, depends ultimately on the welfare of the individuals in that population and their ability to to breed and bring on the next generation. So there is a relationship between those things, I think, and I think it's productive to to think about that. It's been helpful to me, um, and there are some 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 more obvious overlaps. Um, for example, environmental enrichment, which is you know, the primary motivation for looking at environmental enrichment in zoos, has been to improve welfare. Um, but also there's carryovers to conservation when you're rearing animals in captivity to release back into the wild, which admittedly is a very small proportion of the animals that we have in captivity. But you know, there are some significant advantage, examples and, and there will continue to be. The environments that you keep them in in captivity have an impact on how successfully they can re be reintroduced um, back into the wild. And um, you know, there's uh, the, 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 um, the giant panda work that um, um, that I became involved with through um, uh, the uh, the San Diego Zoo with um, Ron Swaysgood um, was a great example of how uh, you know studying studying animals in a in a captive situation could really tell us something that was very important for their um, their, uh, their their wild conservation and and reintroduction efforts for for the giant panda. I mean in the research I'm talking about is the work that uh, Megan Martin did as a PhD student for me, where she was able to um, find that uh, giant pandas that were given a choice of mate were more likely to be successful at reproducing than giant pandas that were uh, given a mate um, based purely on the genetics of the available mates around, which is the typical way of, of reproducing uh, endangered species. And she, she got to that point actually from doing a study at the Oregon Zoo on uh, Columbia Basin pygmy rabbits, which was a species that we worked on for about 10 years, captive breeding them for release back into the wild. There aren't actually any in captivity now, they're all back in the wild. Um, but that led to some, that's a, you know, it's uh, as an aspect of that, it has to do with uh, captive welfare and sort of choice and control, if you like, um, but relates directly back to reproduction and saving endangered species, both in captivity and in the wild. And, and, and you know, projects that have that kind of crossover are very exciting. I... Yes, you have done a lot of different conservation projects and you know often when we see photos of you we see you with um, you know wild animals in the outdoors um, you know in, in very cold environments also. Can you talk a little bit about the different conservation projects that you have been involved in perhaps some of the release back into the wild or any you know in C2 projects? Sure, yeah, so I've always felt that, um, I've always felt that zoos shouldn't ignore their regional wildlife. Um, you know, classically zoos display animals that come from 
mainly from other places from where you live. Uh, typically, you know, typically North American, uh, Northern, uh, Northern European and Mer North American zoos display African animals and South American animals and uh, Asian animals. Um, but, you know, we also, especially in North America, we have a very vibrant and diverse, uh, admittedly, in many cases, threatened populations of wild animals. And I, I've always felt that those were, in, in their own way, just as exciting and, and maybe more important, really, in that um, they're animals that we can actually have a much greater impact on through our own personal actions. And so if you're really trying to appeal to people um, about what they can do to create a better future for wildlife, um, in a sense, in some ways, there's more scope with your animals in your own backyard than there is with animals on the other side of the world. And 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 care for one, I think, will lead to care for the other. And so uh, I've um, really specialized uh, in terms of my species recovery activities on, on species within the Pacific Northwest uh, in our own backyard. So I've, I've worked with a you know, fairly wide range of species from um, from the Cal Columbia Basin pygmy rabbit that I just mentioned um, to uh, the California condor. And um, and uh, several in well uh, two or three different butterfly species um, and um, frog and turtle projects, um, most of which are actually still ongoing. Um, of those, I would have to say that uh, you know the premier project is the California condor. It's a, a world-renowned and um, to date highly successful reintroduction effort. I mean, it undoubtedly has saved the California condor, this unique bird, huge bird, from going extinct. And so it's been a total success in that respect. Um, you know, we, we now know that there's a long way to go before they can be considered recovered. And um, I hope I will see that in my lifetime, I'm not sure. Um, but the first part, preventing it from going extinction, has been extremely successful. As, as many of you probably know, it's gone from, I think it was 23 birds um, at, the, at the minimum um, uh, in the wild. And now there's uh, probably about four, 450 or so, uh, most of which are in the wild, still a large number in zoos, but most in the wild. And it's been um, uh, hugely rewarding to be, just to be a small part of that very big um, program. And um, you know, get involved with some of the some of the really interest some of the really interesting aspects of of that program are um, actually not even to do necessarily directly with the California condor, but just to do with human behavior and some of the human behaviors that um, conflict with healthy wildlife. And uh, I mean, the issue that I'm particularly thinking about there is the fact that the primary cause of mortality for wild California condors now is lead poisoning and they're being poisoned by lead that they pick up from the lead fragments that a bullet leaves in a carcass when it travels through the carcass. Um, and we've had a program at the, at the Oregon Zoo that, um, that I helped set up um, where we've actually hired a full-time position um, there to work with hunters to try and get uh, hunters to voluntarily switch from lead ammunition to non-lead ammunition in order to so to um, uh, help the California condor become self-sustaining in the wild, but um, you know, we're recognizing that it's actually a much bigger picture than that. And, and if, if California condors can suffer from lead poisoning like that, then so can many, many other species of, certainly of bird, maybe of mammals as well, but certainly birds. And it's a, you know, it's a much bigger conservation issue. They've been kind of the canary in the gold mine for that particular source of um, um, wildlife exposure to toxins. And it's been um, 
been very interesting and very rewarding. A um, guy called Leland Brown is the guy that runs that program at the Oregon Zoo. And, um, you know, we made, we made a, we were extremely lucky in, in being able to hire him and for him being available at the time that we were looking for somebody um, because he's a professional hunter that's also a wildlife biologist with a tremendous communication skills um, and knowledge about, um, about not just about uh, wildlife, but it's about hunting and the technology behind hunting and bullets and firearms. And um, he's had he's a lot of tremendous amount of success working with some other organizations like um, the Peregrine Fund, uh, the World Center for Bird of Prey, um, and our own local wildlife department, uh, state uh, wildlife department, uh, in in engaging hunters on the in this issue. Uh, that's been that's been a really interesting and exciting project to be involved with. But um, you know, uh, the, the butterfly projects are, are, are interesting, um, and um, the Columbia Basin pygmy rabbit was a, was a, was a classic uh, conservation, uh, captive breeding reintroduction um, project. Uh, again, it's not, it, while we prevented for the Columbia Basin pygmy rabbit from going extinct in eastern Washington, um, it's still a long way from being recovered. And again, a good take home message, message for all of these projects, I guess, is that it's extremely difficult once you get to the but once you get to the point at which a species is, is near to extinction, it's extremely difficult to bring them back. It takes a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of commitment. And of course, we really need to be um, protecting them before that happens. Um, but, uh, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Yes, it's, it's really beautiful to hear these stories and especially also the web you know, the webs that you describe of all these people and different organizations and, you know, the need for communication and working together to, you know, protect animals or to bring animals back. And yeah, that's just really fantastic. And I remember visiting the Oregon Zoo not very long ago, and you also do a lot of education within the zoo, also, you know, around the Californian condors. And there's this whole exhibit talking also about you know, firearms. Can you talk a little bit more about the education in the zoo with regards to all this in situ work that you've been doing? Well, yes, and, that, and that's kind of a, that's one of the challenging um, aspects of this because uh, being a zoo, um, I mean, the unique, I mean, it's two, I guess there's two unique things about zoos with respect to conservation. One is that we can rear, the, rear and breed animals for release back into the wild. I mean, we're one of the few uh, organizations, maybe the only ones that really have the expertise and the resources um, to do that. But the other thing that we have is the audience, uh, and that's also unique, and that no, no one else has an audience like we do. No one else in this sort of env uh, environment, um, conservation environmental field, has this audience of, of uh, hundreds of millions of visitors a year that come to our institutions. Um, not necessarily to learn about animals. That's the that's where the real challenge comes in. We have the we have the potential uh, because we have this huge and fairly diverse audience, um, but that audience is a tough audience because uh, you know they primarily come to zoos for entertainment. I mean, they, they, I think they do expect to be educated somewhat, at least in terms of the names of animals and where they come from. Um, but we're trying to do something much more in depth. Um, uh, than that. We're trying to actually change their opinions and then their behavior. And, um, you know, that is a challenging thing to do. And we can certainly do it through our exhibit uh, information. Like you mentioned, um, the Oregon Zoo, we have a fairly uh, in-depth 
exhibit, Condor exhibit, which talks about the lead ammunition issue. Um, and we know that a lot of our visitors are either hunters or they, or they know people that hunt. That's uh, you know, something that people in the Pacific Northwest have a certain amount of familiarity with, and that's a good thing. You know, we know that when, when kids get an idea in their head and start talking to their parents and grandparents, um, that can have a big impact. Um, so that's certainly one of the avenues that we have. Um, uh, you know, there's again, uh, you know, on the other side, on the other hand, you know, people are unwilling, not necessarily, not always willing to read information at an exhibit, whatever. So um, actually people prefer to receive information from other people. So, um, you know, one of the other ways that we communicate is through the keeper talks that we have at the zoo. We also have, um, uh, we invite speakers in to, to talk at more formal events, um, have a lecture series. Um, I would say that um, for our zoo, well, I shouldn't say our zoo because I retired a year, month ago, but the Orange Zoo, the biggest, probably the biggest tool is the website, um, media, social media. Um, we have a very, very proficient social media staff at, at the Oregon Zoo um, who reach a massive audience, even way, way beyond the audience that comes to the zoo. And they um, always, they're constantly putting out messages that are, are both engaging um, but also contain information and not just information because we know of course within the zoo industry now it's it's well understood that um, education isn't really what we're doing it's uh, social marketing and we're trying to get people to change their opinions not to educate them and the two are not the same thing at all as we increasingly realize we're trying to get, um, grab people by their emotions and, and, and by doing that you know change their opinions and actions and um, you know, that is a task that's immensely important. I mean, the future of the world as we know it depends on that. Um, you know, we've, uh, I mean, and the biggest challenge is, uh, biggest challenge obviously is, is climate change, which uh, it's hard for us to focus on right now, maybe during this COVID pan pandemic, but this is just, um, but the, COVID, the, the, pan the uh, COVID pandemic is just baby steps compared to impact that climate change is gonna have. So um, maybe we'll learn something from it. Um, but zoos can be immensely important um, in, in, in doing that. I think, I think they're aware of that. I think they're getting better at it um, all the time, um, but it's, um, it's vitally important. Um, you know, actually on that thread, I, I hope enough zoos survive the COVID pandemic to still be around to, to engage in that important work. Yes, absolutely. These are really trying times for yeah, many zoos and but also of course wildlife centers and many other facilities that house animals and as you said so many have you know taken to social media to communicate and to engage with their public and of course you know see if if they can get donations and support in other, all kinds of other ways and it's really interesting to see also how many are you know showing how they care for the animals what they're doing to promote animal welfare and in this time also people are talking about you know doing research on what is the impact of for example less visitors or less noise or no visitors no noise uh, on the animals themselves and you know several zoos and aquariums have actually talked about perhaps doing multi-institutional also studies to look at some of these effects and you have been involved in in quite a few multi-institutional projects can you talk a little bit about how you know what are the opportunities are and but also what some of the difficulties were of doing such studies and and perhaps also your opinions of should we have more of those or in what way should they be done 
Yes. So um, when I started, there were very few um, multi-institutional studies had been done in zoo, zoo animal welfare. In fact, the one that Jill Mellon did, you know, while, while in her PhD, right while I was starting, on small cats in North America, and she also went to several European zoos to include um, data from them, um, was one of the first um, really big uh, zoo multi-institutional studies related to animal welfare. So huge credit to Jill Mellon, Dr. Jill Mellon in, in um, doing that. Um, and then um, Kathy Karlstead uh, was um, uh, spearheaded another uh, and several research projects on rhino and several bird species um, in the 90s um, that were multi-institutional multi studies. Um, and yeah, the, 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 problem, the problem with not having multi-institutional studies is you can learn a lot from, uh, from small single institution studies, um, but you're just, you're just looking at a fraction of the picture. You know, you're, you're, the only variables you can look at are the ones associated with the exhibit you're looking at. You have very small sample sizes. And I certainly don't want to underestimate the importance of these smaller studies. They've told us a huge amount and they're a great source of hypotheses. Um, but you also um, learn a huge amount uh, from multi-institutional studies that you can't learn from these smaller studies. So you need both. Um, and really the 90s was the time when these multi-institutional studies really started. And they're, diff they're really difficult. The reason they hadn't been done before also is because they're really difficult to do. They involve coordination between huge numbers of people and um, you know, in some ways that coordination has become easier with technology now, um, but in some ways it hasn't actually. Um, but um, Sonny Jill and, and Kathy Karsted were, were pioneers in that respect. And then I did that polar bear study in uh, around 2000, um, which um, involved, I'm trying to remember, I think about 25 different zoos. Um, so that was another multi-institutional multi look at um, polar bear welfare, which uh, I hope came up with some uh, important and useful uh, and appliable uh, findings. Um, so then the next one that, I, that I'm aware of and was involved in was then the, the elephant um, multi-institutional study that happened in the mid, uh, well happened around, um, I, think we, I think it was around two, uh, 2012 and went on for about three or four years, uh, which involved almost every zoo in North America that has Asian or African elephants and looked at a huge range of different variables, a lot of physiological variables that, uh, for example, Nadia and Janine uh, Brown um, have written about. And then, uh, and that, that the, the elephant study also was actually pioneered, was led by Kathy Karlstedt. Um, and I was involved in a small part of that, um, looking at the movement of elephants in zoos, putting GPS anklets on elephants. I shouldn't say I, because I was a um, graduate student um, that, uh, um, that, that did that, um, I'll remember his name in a second. Um, but, um, you know, that was, a, that was a very interesting project to be involved in, just at a huge scale. It's a, lot, it was a, it's a big, it's the biggest study, animal welfare study that's ever been done in zoos, for sure. Um, it had a, a, a postgrad was, um, postdoc was, was paid to, um, to actually uh, organize the study and collect the data. And then uh, a huge number of uh, zoo scientists were involved. Um, and then some people from outside the zoo profession from the academic uh, sphere were, were involved as, as well. And it was just um, you know, really interesting to, to see um, how, uh, you know, the, the logistics of doing a study like that. And then um, 
you know, the st using um, epidem epidemiological statistics, statistics that were developed for human uh, health studies and applying those to in a zoo situation with, um, you know, uh, some success um, was was interesting. And I think we I think we came out with some, in fact, we're still coming out with some uh, really useful information um, that really will, that uh, that's really going to impact elephant and zoo elephant and uh, enclosure design and husbandry for, for years to come. That's great. And what we can do is as we're posting this podcast, we will also post links to the various studies and, you know, institutions, people that are working on these various matters so that, you know, people who are interested, they can follow up and, and look at the work um, that you and others have been doing on this. So yeah, we're almost, just, I, oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry, I just want to mention, it was, it was Maddie Holgate was the graduate student that did um, the, um, the, the space use work on the elephants as a graduate student with me. Excellent, great. We'll make sure to, to mention her work as well. Now, him. we're almost him, <laughs> sorry. Um, that seems, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, okay, him. Sorry, apologies for that. So we're almost an hour into the podcast. I have a few more questions. And one of them is related to, you know, researchers. Quite a number of zoos today have an aquariums, but also wildlife centers. They have a research lab, so we can't really forget anybody, but they have actually animal welfare scientists or biologists or welfare scientists on staff that are doing research. And in what ways, you know, it seems obvious, but also in what ways can researchers and animal care staff work together? What have you found you know, you already talked about the importance of applied, you know, it's not just a theory, um, but and making changes like you just mentioned, you know, the research that we've done is going to influence the way that we're going to take care of these animals in the long run. So what are some of your takeaway, you know, messages from all your decades of experience and research and working with people and in, in improving animal welfare? Well, um, that's a, that's potentially a big topic, but um, yes, keepers <laughs> us you know, keepers us so central to to zoo animal lives um, that really uh, you know everything has to relate to keepers in a, in a sense. Um, they're the people who really know uh, well. They have a window into the animal's subjective experience themselves, just uh, through their own direct relationship, and they know what's happening to the animals. Um, you know, if you go and ask the zoo directors how, how their animals are cared for, you'll get one story. If you, you ask the keepers, you might get a different story. So they're, they're really the people with the on-ground on knowledge and the relationship with the animals. So they're key to everything. Um, so researchers that are not connected in some way with the animal keeping staff are unlikely to come up with the right questions or use the right methodology to find the answers that we need. Uh, so that's kind of just a, you know, with comment, I guess. Um, yes, the other there's so that, many, uh, so many, of course. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the other, the other aspect of that that comes to mind when you mention that is, um, it means that the relationship between the keepers and their animals it, themselves are, again, absolutely key to the animal's well-being. And um, you know, it's a topic on which there's been you know a fair amount of research, but there's still um, a long way to go on that um, in terms of understanding that relationship more and then ultimately being able to to maybe apply the results to uh, improving the way that that goes for, for both the, the keepers and the animals. And then the other, the other key to that is um, 
you know, there's such an emphasis now on continuous assessment of welfare, which is great. And the American Zero Aquarium Association are, are now requiring it. They have been requiring it for the last couple of years in their accreditation standards. And they have some guidelines as to what that means. And uh, Nadia, Nadia Rubnowski has been very much involved um, with developing some of those tools. Um, but those, a lot of the assessment, again, comes back to the keepers. And it's how, how, do, we, how do we utilize the keepers who have this close relationship with the animals as a way to be able to give us the feedback on the welfare of the animals in the most, um, in real time, in, a, in an effective and validated way. And again, I just done a huge amount of work on that, but the keepers are key to that. Um, so yeah, really, uh, zoo animal keepers are right at the center of the zoo animal welfare um, issue. Yes, and of course, also with the support of, of researchers and animal welfare scientists or other domains like Nadia's domain are so important of, you know, all these different pieces of the puzzle in working together. And, you know, you have already spoken quite a bit about um, the psychology of animals and animals' minds. And just recently, you also published, uh, I think it was a book chapter, if I remember correctly, or was yes. it? Yes. Yes, on the psychological well-being of animals. And uh, I actually haven't read it yet. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what that chapter was about? Um, actually, Sabrina, I don't think I can. I, haven't, I need to go back and look at that. Um, okay, no problem. Yeah, no, that, that, that happens to me as well. It's like, oh, that's been a while ago. Let me, you know, I have to refresh my memory. But, you know, you have talked a lot about, of course, the importance of the psychological well-being, the inner lives of the animals. So, you know, we're both going to go back to that chapter <laughs> and, uh, and uh, have, a, have a good look at that. So, but of course, the other thing that, that so many people know you for is your book, Second Nature. And of course, a lot of times we're like, are you going to like write another book or are you going to do an extension of that book? Because of course, we're really quite excited to hear if you're, if you're going to do anything with that anymore in the writing. Uh, yeah, that's a difficult Painful question in a way. Uh, oh. <laughs> the book was uh, the book was a great thing. It was a great time to do that book because at the time there was there was very little information about environmental enrichment. In fact, that book came out of the very first conference on environmental enrichment that myself and Jill Mellon organized in '93, I think it was, at the Oregon Zoo here in Portland, Oregon. And it was the first time when, you know, it was a relatively new nascent field of study and we brought together pretty much all the people that were working in that field to come to a three-day conference and talk about it including Hal Markowitz um, and um, it was I, I think it was uh, it was it was the, the time was right and it was really useful and spurred a lot of work uh, afterwards and so you know it was it seemed like the obvious next step would be to make a book sort of roughly based around the meeting and that we would have um, chapters from the different people at the meeting and a few other people um, and you know it's a multi multi-author book and only anybody who's done that knows that that can be a little bit painful so it was a little bit painful um, but we got it done I think it probably took us four or five years to do it um, and then it did become and still actually is uh, a text that people refer to um, that and Robert Young's uh, book on environmental enrichment which I think um, he's uh, bringing out a new edition of yes um, there's not much so, on enrichment, so it's it's truly needed, and there's very yeah very few books on it or texts on it. So yes, it's, it's actually it's a bit surprising because there's a huge amount of um, 
papers uh, in different journals about enrichment, but not that many books. Um, and it's, it's really true that books have more impact than papers. I mean, that book has had more of an impact uh, than any of the papers I've written, I think. Um, and people know me for the book, not through the research papers that um, I've been involved with. Um, you know, I have had some interest in, not recently actually, but in the, in the past I've had some interest from the publishers on, on redoing it. Um, I don't know. It's, um, I don't know. Uh, maybe. I mean, I'd be open to the idea. Um, but it'd be a lot of work. And, um, you know, part of me almost feels, in a, you know, you know, I started off thinking that environmental enrichment wouldn't last very long, that it would be kind of a fad that might last 10 years. It's lasted a lot longer than that, I think partly because, you know, the concept of it has expanded to include a lot of other things. So it's become almost an umbrella for a lot of the things that we do for welfare in zoo animals. And, in, and, 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 and the fact that it's got bigger in scope means that it, I think it would be harder to do an a, a all-encompassing book now. Um, so I don't know if there are anybody out there who wants to be a co-author and has some um, more cogent ideas about what that book would look like, uh, feel free to get in touch with me. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Great. So many great uh, stories and, and it's really good to hear history. And, uh, you know, I've approached quite a few people that have been in this field for a very long time, especially also to hear, you know, these perspectives and these stories. So I really appreciate that you sharing those with us. Now, before we, you know, complete the, conclude the podcast, do you have a good animal story? To share with us either from the zoo or your work in the field <laughs> like something funny or something that was pretty scary because everybody loves a good animal story <laughs> yeah, i have a notoriously bad memory so i hate those kind of questions but um oh. so the, one, the, the one that comes to mind though is actually i think it's the picture that might you might have used um on your website a picture of me holding a golden eagle yes um, that's, that's certainly one of the funniest things i've done in the last um 10 years. It's, uh, it was actually a study to do with the lead um, issue that I talked about. Um, so I, worked, I was working with, uh, I helped a, a friend of mine who works with the US Fish and Wildlife Service who's a toxicologist and he was doing a study in Eastern Oregon. They wanted to see, and the, so in Eastern Oregon, it's, a, it's, de it's high desert, um, but there's also irrigated fields out there where they grow a lot of crops. So we have these uh, irrigated um, circles of uh, crops and um, ground squirrels come and eat those crops. So the, the farmers love to get, try and get rid of ground squirrels. And so there's a lot of shooting of ground squirrels. In fact, people pay to come to Oregon and shoot ground squirrels in the summer. Oh. And so you've got these fields full of dead ground squirrels that have been shot with lead ammunition. And so what the Fish and Wildlife Service wanted to find out was whether adult gold, nesting golden eagles were bringing back enough um, of these contaminated carcasses to their chicks that it would result in dangerous lead levels in the chicks. And so the way that they went about trying to find out about that was to go to identified nests throughout Eastern Oregon and um, rappel into the nests and collect the chicks, take a blood sample, two blood samples over the course of the chicks um, time in the nest. Um, and then you'll see how that related to the proximity of crop circles to that nest. And so I was, uh, I was lucky enough to to be able to help him do some of that. And actually, you know, I love to get out in, in, in nature myself, and I've also spent a lot of time rock climbing in the past. So the idea of rappelling down a cliff to to try and get to a golden eagle nest was just too too good to resist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was able to rappel into a, a number of nests and had some close encounters with some 
angry chicks. Um, no, not adults, fortunately. The adults stayed clear while we were around the nest. Um, but I, I did. Uh, we did have some interesting times, like when, <laughs> and one particular instance when I rappelled down to the nest, and the and the chick managed to escape me, evade me, and flew across this narrow canyon to the other side. And the other guy that was with me had to run about 500 feet down this talus slope, and 500 feet up the talus slope on the other side to the to get the chick. Then, then of course, flew off when he got within 20 yards of it. He spent the next hour running around the canyon trying to, to get that chick. We did get it in the end, um, and the chick was fine. I should um, point out, um, but that was um, that was pretty exciting. Absolutely, yeah. And repelling down cliffs—that sounds absolutely exciting. So great. Yes. <laughs> yes, excellent. Well, thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom and your research and all your stories. And we will, of course, you know, add any links and, and references to this podcast so everybody can explore. And of course, we're going to see whether we can, you know, get some more environmental enrichment writing out there. So because, of course, it, it maintains and it's great that it didn't just last 10 years. But, uh, you know, your book um, and, you know, together with everybody from that conference, you know, is still serving such a really good purpose for animals all around the world. And of course, all your work in, in conservation as well. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. And yeah, looking forward to an, another chat some other time. Well, thank you, Sabrina. That was, it was a great pleasure. Great. Okay. Already the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. Find us on your favorite platform and leave your comments and suggestions or go to the Animal Concepts website to send us your questions and feedback. We are so happy to answer them and address them in future podcasts. Animal Concepts is dedicated to helping you care for animals and yourself. Are you interested in quality animal care and welfare content, in actions and resources for you to be well while caring for animals? then check out PAWS, the practical animal welfare science platform, which has webinars, science into practice case studies, private Facebook live sessions, and a lot of resources for you and the animals you care for. You can share your experiences and connect to animal care professionals and scientists from around the world. In the meantime, take care of you and the animals and keep buzzing.